book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to read several verses from chapter 1, beginning in verse 3 and ending in verse 14. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you're not familiar with your Bible, go towards the back. And if you find Revelation, then just then go left, not too many pages, and you'll run into First and Second Timothy. All the T's are put together: Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. So if you get in the T's, you're in the same you're in the same neighborhood. Second Timothy chapter one, beginning with verse three. Let's stand together as we read God's word. <clears throat> Paul's words to Timothy. His disciple, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. For this reason, I, am reminded you, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the, the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in his suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound teaching, of sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. The rest of the story is what we've been doing. If you're just joining us maybe for the first time today, we've been spending this school year going through the Bible. And here we are, uh, we're quickly reaching the end of our long overview. 
And this morning, I want to start by beginning. Uh, to, I want to start. You don't start by beginning. You just start <clears throat> by looking at the table of contents in your Bible. So, just turn to the very first few pages of your Bible. And I want to help us just understand how the New Testament is divided. We're trying to understand how God's Word is put together. There are basically five sections in the Old Testament, which we've talked about at length, and uh, now we're in the New Testament, and there are five segments here. Most scholars divide the New Testament up into five different segments. First, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's known as the Gospels. That's the, the good news about the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. So each four of these writers are writing the Gospel, which means good news. Good news has come to uh, our creation, and it's the Creator showed up, uh, the incarnation. God in the flesh came, and He, he moved in. And so there's an explanation of his birth and his life and his death in those first four books. And then the book of Acts stands alone as the second section, and it's the Acts of the Disciples. In other words, after Jesus was taken back up into heaven, what happened? And what, what do these 12 disciples and then the people who began to follow Jesus do? And that's the book of Acts. That's also written by Luke. So you could think of Luke as uh, part one, and then the sequel is Acts, part two. Then there's a series of 14 letters, Romans, uh, all the way down to Hebrews, and those are known as the Pauline epistles, or Paul's letters. If you want to sound fancy, just say, oh, those are the Pauline epistles, and you kind of shake your head. But it's Paul's letters. Paul is writing to a specific group of people. He's writing either to churches or he's writing to individual people. And those are called the uh, Paul's, Paul's, Episcopal, uh, Paul's epistles. And then James down to Jude are called the general epistles or the general letters. They're written by people to a general audience. It's not a letter that's targeted to Rome or a letter that's targeted to uh, Thessalonian. And then the fifth segment is the book of Revelation, uh, the second coming of Christ. So we're back here in Second Timothy, and we're going to look closely at uh, one of Paul's letters, the last letter that he wrote. Uh, last week, Sam did a great job of helping us understand from a big, you know, 30,000 point view, 30,000 foot view, the book of Romans. That's probably the most influential letter of maybe the whole Bible, but certainly the most influential letter that Paul wrote. And, and all these, these letters were written to specific churches and then or to specific people. And this last letter was written to Timothy, as I said. It's his protege. It's his disciple. This is a young man that ha- has seen Paul do a lot of ministry. And Paul is leaving. He's departing. He's in a Roman prison cell. He can tell that his, his life is coming to an end. He's soon to be beheaded. And he's writing from this dark prison cell one last letter to his friend, who's now the pastor that he's left behind in Ephesus, and that is Timothy. And Paul uses a reoccurring phrase in 2 Timothy, if you were just to read all four chapters. Some versions uh, write it as this, but as for you. 
You get, you even got a sense of just the, the kindness of Paul's heart towards Timothy. I, 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 I knew your tears. I longed to see you. It comes back at the end. And so this is a, this is a, a spiritual father trying to invest in, in this uh, son of his one last time because he's going to begin to carry on the gospel. And he uses this phrase, but as for you, See, see, Timothy, there's going to be a, a lot of different ways the world is going to ask you to live. There's going to be all kinds of competitors out there, and you, you're familiar with them, but I want you to know you have to live a different way. You, you have a different walk in this world. There, there's a kind of walk that the people outside do, but, but you as the pastor, you as this, this Christian leader, but as for you, you've got to live differently. You just can't walk in the same way. You can't operate in the same way. You have to have something bigger on your mind than just what you see out in front of you. And so this morning I want to use this one phrase. We saw it very, at the very end of verse 14. Look at it with me. Uh, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I want to use that one phrase just to build, to be a base, to build my entire sermon. And I'm just going to pick out these three words or these three phrases. The good deposit. So what's the good deposit? And then the word entrusted. And then the word guard. So I will be in the letter, but that's, I'm trying to look at these three things. This is, but as for you, Timothy, here's what you need to do. You've got to guard this good deposit that's been entrusted to you. And so we can get help from this this morning. First of all, the good deposit. Some translations, and I maybe prefer that, is it says treasure. You have a treasure. This spiritual father, again, he's, he's looking at Timothy and saying, I'm handing over this incredible inheritance. It's, it's an incredible treasure, and the treasure is the gospel. It's a treasure to Paul. He wants Timothy to treasure it. And just, just to stop here and just ask this preliminary question, when you think about the gospel, is it a treasure? Is it orient your whole life? You really treasure it. It's like the most valuable thing you have. And the longer you have it, the bigger the deposit grows. We'll come back to that. In this letter, Paul doesn't offer a full explanation of the gospel. He really does that well in the book of Romans. It's kind of his masterpiece. And here, Paul, the preacher, is talking to another preacher. So he's not going to outline the entire gospel, but he gives a little hint. You see this in verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. Here's a little slice of the gospel. Paul's always squeezing it in. The appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light. That's the treasure. That's the gospel. That's the, that's the good deposit. And let's just notice the words here from verse 10. Appearing. So, so somebody appeared. The, the Greek word is epiphany. In other words, the light, came on, the light comes on. If you have an epiphany, it means I see something I didn't see before. And so what Paul is saying here is reminding, of Tim, reminding Timothy is that, that when Jesus came into the world, the lights came on. The first thing God said at creation, what was it? 
Let there be light. I want the light to come on onto this world. But because of sin, we fell into a dark place. C.S. Lewis calls us the silent planet in his fictional series. We're, we're a dark planet, so in the recreation, we need the light to come back on. And that's exactly how the Apostle John describes it. You remember in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So when Jesus comes into the world, when he appears, when it's an epiphany, it's like the light comes on. That's the first thing Paul wants to help us see here in his little explanation of the gospel. A light came to, to the earth, and it was our Savior. You see that phrase there. See, because of sin, in Genesis chapter 3... When darkness came over our souls, our spirits, because we disconnected ourselves from God, we disconnected ourselves from the, the life-giving light source of our whole lives, we've been waiting for a Savior to come. We've been waiting for somebody to come. And you remember in Genesis chapter 3, 15, uh, God promises this seed of the woman who's going to come. And this seed of the woman is going to come and he's going to crush sin without crushing us. And all of humanity, since Genesis 3.15, has been leaning forward saying, we're waiting for the Savior, we're waiting for this person who can bring life and immortality, that somehow they can crush my sin and not crush myself, which is, seems like a hard thing to do. And only one person has that capacity, and that's Christ. That's the good deposit, that's the, the treasure the, the appearing of a Savior who brings life. It's just a little tiny way to describe the gospel. It's just a little tiny way Paul squeaks in the gospel in his letter. And it's a treasure. And, and I know when you, you go through your every day, it's hard to think of it as a treasure. So I'm trying to remind you, think of it as a treasure. But I can tell you, on Friday when I stood here in front of the votables, it was a treasure. It was a mighty treasure. 600 people looking for hope. Not hoping Connor was a nice guy. Not hope that he came to church. Hope that the light of eternity came on in Connor's life and brought him last Saturday from this life to immortality and life. That's our hope. And I want to just come back and ask, is it a treasure for you? It's a treasure for Paul. He's trying to make it known to this young disciple. You need to treasure this. This is a it's a good deposit. Is it a treasure? Second, this good deposit, notice the word entrusted. It was entrusted to Timothy. So my question, just as I'm reading through this, and you might have similar questions as you read through the Bible. So I'm just asking myself, okay, what's the good deposit? What's the treasure? It's the gospel. And it got entrusted. It got, it got delivered somehow to Timothy. And so I'm just asking myself, well, how did that get delivered? And I just love Paul's answer. 
how it got delivered. You can look at it with me. Chapter 1, verse 5. Notice what Paul says. Here's, here's how the gospel got entrusted. I'm reminded of your, Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt or was entrusted to your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now... It's been entrusted to you. It dwells in you. It got passed on by your parents, by your, your mom and your grandmother. The, the treasure gets passed on through his parents. It now dwells in Timothy. And, and I just want to say, what a legacy. I can't even imagine a better legacy. I mean, you, 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 sometimes you hear that word, especially right now at the end of a presidential term. You know, what's the legacy? As a parent, what could be a better legacy? That you passed on your faith. And it really does. It substantially dwells in your child. Now, now every parent here, I want you to know that every parent here is passing on their faith. Whatever faith you have, or if you say you have no faith, you're passing on something. It's not an option of whether you are or you're not passing on. You're passing on something to your children. And my question for those here who are Christians, would your children say what you're passing on is a treasure? Would they think you think it's a treasure? Not do they think it's a treasure. But if I come and just ask your child and say, what do your parents think about their faith? I don't know. Is it a treasure? Do you see it as a treasure? Do you pass it on as a treasure? Or, or maybe do you pass it on as a tourist attraction? Oh, Just every now and again we circle back around to it. It's not a treasure. It's just something we've got to do on Sundays. See, you are passing something on. There's no question about that. It's what are you passing on? And my question is... From the very beginning to the end, is it a treasure? Do you treasure this thing that's been entrusted, parents? So, so the, the first part of the delivery system for Timothy is, is the parents, the mother and the grandmother specifically, were, were entrusting their faith to their child. Second, notice this, chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says this, follow the pattern of sound teaching. So, Timothy, follow my pattern, pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ. So, again, love this Greek word, this pattern, this word for pattern means hupotuposis. I love to say that. You say it with me. Hupotuposis. So, you know, a little Greek word right now. And what that means is you're placing something underneath a stamp. So think of a piece of paper you're putting underneath a stamp, and you're, you're pressing that stamp out. So it's going to be ingrained with whatever is on that stamp. See, it, this is exactly the way most of our faith works. We're getting it from our parents, and then we need a pattern to follow. So, so Timothy has soaked up the scriptures from childhood from his parents. And as he grows older, he needs a pattern to follow. He needs somebody to, to stamp his life. And that stamp for Timothy is the Apostle Paul. What a combination for Timothy. 
I've got this faithful mother and grandmother who are soaking me in the Scripture. They're passing on their faith like it's a treasure. And then I meet the Apostle Paul of all things, and he puts his stamp on me. Praise God, what a life. A a parent and a pattern. If you have a teenager, you know this. You've tried to do your best, right? You've tried to soak them in the Scriptures, and you bring them to church, and you're looking for a pattern. You're looking for a youth leader. You're looking for somebody else just to say the same thing because it's now a little bit more difficult to communicate. They're, they're trying to set their own standards, and you want somebody to come in like David or, or Grayson or Kelly and say, hey, just put your stamp on them. I want them to be just like you. And so praise God for these people who, who come in and impress their lives on our teenagers. Every parent wants that. You want to do your part, and then you want a pattern. You want somebody to follow. When, when college students come here, and then it's like parents weekend or graduation weekend, their parents come. And they're so thankful for Christ Community Church. Oh, I'm so grateful. You're putting your print, imprint on them. Not, not just me, but us. So, so my question here just in this little passage is, first of all, do you need a pattern? Maybe just drifting. You're just, I really am a Christian, but somehow I just never got stamped. I just, when I do my quiet times once a week, I flip open the Bible. I just don't really know what to do. I need somebody to press in upon me. If that's you, I'm pleading with you. To to see me afterwards or call me or do something will put you in touch with somebody. But secondly, there are plenty of people here. And if you think I'm looking at you, I may be looking at you. You need to stamp somebody. There are so many people who need stamping. And, and you've got all these resources that somebody's poured into your life. It's time for you to stamp somebody. So that you might need to call me and say, hey, I, I've just sort of been sitting on the sidelines. You can t- stamp somebody. Whether they're 5 or 15 or 50 you need help because you've never really been stamped. You've never had somebody take the time like the Apostle Paul to put their stamp on you. Please, you let me know. You may need to be a stamper. And we need those people as well. So we've got this, this, these, these things that we're looking at. We're looking at this, this idea that the gospel is a treasure and it's been entrusted. It's been entrusted by the parents. It's been entrusted by the Apostle Paul. But I want you to see a third way. And this is actually the most important part of this entrusting. Look at with me at chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Therefore, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed that I'm a prisoner. But you're going to have to share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. Who Now, this is the entrusting part. You're going to share in the gospel the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, 
but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us. Now, what I want you to hear is he entrusted us. Here it comes. He gave us in Christ Jesus. Now, when did he entrust the gospel to Timothy? That's my question. He gave us something in Christ, and when did it get delivered to Timothy? Now, without reading forward, I would want to say, well, when his parents taught him the Scriptures. That would be my first thought. Or, when Paul put a stamp on him. And that is, of course, true. But notice how Paul just drops in this bomb and then moves on. I love how he does this all the time. Which he gave us in Christ before time began. Whoa! This is completely mind-blowing. And I love how Paul does it. He just drops it in and keeps on rolling. No explanation. Hey, I thought you got entrusted with the gospel because your parents soaked you in the scriptures. I thought you got entrusted with the gospel when somebody planted or imprinted their life on you. I thought you got entrusted with the gospel when you came forward and made a commitment to Christ. I thought you got entrusted with the gospel when you went to a camp and you got on your knees and said, God, I can't fix my life. you got to come in. I thought that's when it happened. Well, in a horizontal way, yes, it happened that way. But in a vertical way, God has entrusted the gospel to you before time even began that's amazing and you might say how do those two things go together and I would say the apostle Paul just drops them in there and moves on and so pastor Paul's just going to drop them in here and move on and I'm going to let you have lunch And you try to describe how those two things that don't look like they fit together, but they just fit together. It's just Paul's way of saying, hey, that's the way God works. The best explanation I could have just in a sentence, and you can chew it up at lunch. God has designed the entrusting of the good deposit in such a way that you and I take an active and important role in God's predetermined plan. Let me say that one more time. God has designed the entrusting of the the treasure in such a way that you and I, a mom, a grandmother, a, a Paul, take an active part and an important part, an important role in God's predetermined plan. Number three, guard, this third word. So we've talked about the the good deposit. We've talked about how it gets entrusted. And now guard, guard the good deposit. And I want to just mention, and this is in my closing here, three ways Timothy, Paul means for Timothy to be on guard. All right, so you got this great treasure. You see how it's come to you. It's miraculous. It's both come from a a horizontal plane. My mom, my my friend Paul, it's come from a vertical plane. God, it's a real treasure, and I've got to guard it. I can't just let let it go. I've got to somehow keep a guard on it. And there's three ways I think Paul means for Timothy to guard it. First of all, turn with me to chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. But understand this, Timothy. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, 
heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the concerning, really the concerning part about this, verse 5. All these people with this description, they will have the appearance of godliness. If you were worried about a terrorist and trying to recognize a terrorist, you could easily recognize one if they had a rocket launcher on their shoulder. You'd say, it looks like he's taking aim at me. Run. But the problem with a terrorist is you can't, you can't notice them. They look like everybody else. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, Timothy, you've got to be on guard. Because there's going to be some people that come in that look like they're godly. It could be a pastor, could be a teacher, could be a parent, could be any number of people. And they're going to have a form of godliness. But they're, they're going to be shapeshifters. They're going to be like the wolf in sheep's clothing. So that's one way you have to be on guard. Similarly, chapter 4, verse 2. Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure such sound teaching, but they will have itching ears. What a great phrase. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away, and they'll stop listening to the truth. They're going to be hostile to the truth, and they're going to wander off into myths. But as for you, great phrase, always be sober-minded. Timothy, you got to be on guard. you got to brace yourself because these people are going to come. that They're like wolves in sheep's clothing. And then you got to brace yourself because... There's going to be hostility to the gospel, and instead of really wanting the truth, people are going to have a real hunger for myths, a real hunger for novelty. And just just as a question, why would there be so much hostility to the truth? You might think, well, I just the truth, the truth sets me free. It's better to know the truth. Why wouldn't you want to know the truth? Why would you be hostile to the Bible? Now, there's more than one answer, but I think at least one of the answers was because the Bible forces you into a, a radically new orbit. It's instead of your life orbiting around you and your life, you have to orbit your life around someone else. That's, that's Jesus. And it's always painful to end a love affair. And you and I, we have a raging love affair with ourselves. And to end that orbit is hard. <clears throat> I was thinking about this sermon and driving away from here yesterday and was just listening to some radio show about technology. And so the little... Uh, part the little part that I heard was about uh, the selfie stick, and so without making a lot of comments here, right on the selfie stick, it was a new advancement on the selfie stick. 
which I had not heard of. Which surprisingly, Mr. Tech that I am, uh, it's the flying selfie stick. Now, I'm not making this up. It's the flying selfie stick. It's got the GoPro camera, right? And you throw the GoPro camera up into the air, and it's like, um, it's, it's whirling, right? It's got some propellers on it. And you already have face recognition with it. So when you throw it up in the air, it looks at you, you look at it, wave, and then it follows you. About 25 to 50 feet in the air, it just follows you around. Now look, I know there are some cool applications for this. And I know if I were younger, I would think, dude, I've got to get a flying selfie stick. And I'm not saying if you have one, I'm not saying you're not going to have a house in heaven. Won't be, won't be near my house. It'll just be another place. But here's what I thought. Okay, we got now we got the flying selfie stick. Do we really need more video of your life? Is that what the world's dying for? Instead of just you posting a picture, instead of you sticking a selfie stick out and getting more of your life, now you can post the video of you walking wherever you go. And you get to post it on your Facebook. And I just keep thinking, do we need more of you to follow? Answer, no. You and I, our lives are not big enough to follow. There is only one life big enough to follow. And it's this life. But we have a love affair with ourselves. And when the truth comes in, I don't want that preacher. And instead, I'll pay preachers to tell me what I already believe about myself. And that happens lots of Sundays. So Paul is warning Timothy, and it could be today. Be on guard. Be on guard against these things. Second thing that, that Paul's, or, and then just this notice, verse 5, be sober-minded. I love, love his choice of words. In other words, Timothy, don't get intoxicated with yourself. Second thing to be on guard with, chapter 2, verse 22. So, Timothy, flee youthful passions. Paul tells Timothy he's got to be in guarded against, against himself. A few of you will remember this phrase from the very first letter, 1 Timothy. Paul looks at his disciple Timothy and says, guard your life and your doctrine closely. So Paul knows, hey, people have two eyes, Timothy, and they got one thing on what you believe and one thing on your behavior. And those things have to match up. So you got to watch what you believe. you got to watch what you, how you behave. People are watching, Timothy, and those are the two things. You've got to guard yourself. And in terms of your behavior, you've got, you're a young man. You've got to flee from youthful lusts. You know what the Greek for flee means? Uh, flee. That's what it means. 
Don't slouch away slowly. Don't analyze your youthful passions. Don't negotiate with them. Reflect on them. Manage them. Don't say, it's only one time. No one will know it. It's not hurting anyone. Because of my hardships, I deserve this one outlet. I'll stop tomorrow. God will forgive me. No, he doesn't say that. He says, flee. And what he means is flee. And my question is here not about your doctrine, but your behavior. Not about your beliefs, but your behavior. Is there some behavior you need to flee from? And really you just manage it because you love yourself. Third, final thing here to be on guard. Chapter 1, back in chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame this gift. This is the, this gift of proclamating or, or speaking the gospel. I, t- t- Timothy, you need to fan yourself into flame. Yeah, I know it's in you. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord. Don't be ashamed about the gospel. Don't don't flame out Timothy. Don't shrink back Timothy. Don't be ashamed Timothy. You got to move forward. I know it's going to be difficult. You're going to have difficult times in your life, but there's going to be a strong temptation Paul understands to be ashamed of the gospel. It's not going to be popular on your campus. It's not going to be popular in your home. It's not going to be popular with your business and at that moment, don't be ashamed. Don't shrink back. Don't flame out. John Stott says, This temptation is strong. If Timothy had not felt it, Paul would have not exhorted him in these terms. If Paul himself had never felt it, it would have been unnecessary for him to assert with such vehemence in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. See, it's a temptation for every man. But listen to how Stott ends. We are all more sensitive to public opinion than we like to admit. The the biblical cast of characters who God needs to come in and encourage to say, Don't be ashamed. It's It's like a hall of fame. Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Jeremiah, Peter. All people who were great people of the faith, but all needed this encouragement. Don't be ashamed. Don't flame out. Don't shrink back. Let me close with this story. Uh, Two weeks ago, Grayson, David, and I, Sam, Austin, we all went to this conference up in Louisville called Together for the Gospel. And it was about the Reformation and the necessity of the Reformation to reclaim the Gospel around the 15 and 1600s. And so each talk was sort of a reminder of how um, important it was and how men and women in those days had to sacrifice their lives for Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That, That these people were not ashamed of the gospel. And we stand on their shoulders. Many of them burned at the stake and killed for their faith. And in Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is just an excellent little volume that is worth you looking at, it talks about one man named Robert Lamb. He was, this is what Fox reports, he was accused in special, I love this, for interrupting the friar in the pulpit. 
So this man really understands the gospel. The friar comes up and insists in the middle of the sermon, uh, friar, yeah, that's not right. And, and he not only confessed it, but this is how Fox puts it, he also affirmed constantly, oh, yes, I did that. Oh, yes, I did that. Saying this, no man who knew the truth should hear the gospel maligned without openly stating the contradiction. If you just stand by quietly, then you are taking part in hiding the truth. Who would want to bear this burden in God's presence? See, the gospel was a treasure for Robert Lamb. And if he had to stand up to the fire and say, that's just not true. Then I'd rather stand in, in the presence of you and then be burned at the stake or drowned than stand in the presence of God and say, I stood back and I was just quiet when the gospel was not being treasured. It wasn't being told as a truth. So Robert Lamb didn't shrink back. His friends didn't shrink back. James Robinson, they all were in Scotland together and his wife. And they were all being taken together to a place of execution, which was a river to be drowned. And his wife, who was breastfeeding their child, earnestly pleaded to die with her husband. But instead, she was forced to watch him go first. Just listen to the report. And imagine wives being of this kind of timber. Here's how Fox reports it. Following him to the place of execution, she gave him comfort, exhorting him to, to persevere and have patience for Christ's, sakes. Christ's sake. And parting from him with a kiss, said this, Husband, rejoice, for we have lived together many joyful days. But this day in which we must die ought to be the most joyful unto us both, because we must have joy forever. Therefore, I will not bid you good night, for we shall suddenly meet in joy in the kingdom of heaven. What a last statement. That comes from somebody who treasures the gospel. Afterward, the wife, still breastfeeding her infant, gave her child to a neighbor. And this is how Fox says it. Then sealed up the truth with her death. But as for you, somehow, by people and the work of God, you have been entrusted with a treasure. You've got to guard it. But in the guarding, it might cost you your life. Do you treasure the gospel. Let's pray together.